0: Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome to all of you here today. So lovely to see you here. My name is Tracy Locke and I'm the Curator of Australian Art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. I'm also the curator of this exhibition. I think There are many sort of new and fresh faces here that what I would like to do really is give a a general introduction to the exhibition and to Clarice Beckett and if we have time I'll talk a little bit more about her aspects of spiritualism in her work and certainly in her life. So let's just begin very broadly. I will be just getting you at certain points today to, to move on your chairs to look at some works on the back wall and then move back again. What I would love to do is take you through the whole exhibition, but it's just in terms of COVID and safety and so forth, not possible. I think to begin with, what I would like to say to you all is really about the structure of the exhibition. People have been very taken away by the way this um, exhibition, Clarice Beckett, The Present Moment, pivots around the course of one single day. And I didn't think it was really that radical because I've been doing some other radical curatorial work within the permanent collection, but you know, To be fair, most exhibitions like this are really hung chronologically. But with Clarice Beckett, it didn't seem logical because her active period of working was only 16 years. So that's very short for a major artist. So across those 16 years, she was actually pretty good from the beginning and pretty good at the end. And there's very little uh, development in her style. There is development, but it's very subtle. So it seemed very logical to me to perhaps direct our visitors, including yourselves, to other aspects in her work that are very important, and that is the sense of the temporal, and observing and capturing the effects of light across the entire day and into night. So this idea of time is very much intrinsic to her work and therefore a decision, I made a decision to structure it from the very first moment of dawn as you walk in and we do know that Clara Speckett actually got up as early as 4am in the morning to go out painting to capture those very first moments of light. And then we travel through from morning to this space, which really relates to daytime, and then through to the kitchen, the sunset, and then the nocturnes. So that's just a little bit of explanation about why this exhibition is, is structured this way. If we get time, I'll also talk a little bit about the doorways and the portals. But firstly, I'll come back to the very beginning. Who was Clarice Beckett? So Clarice Beckett was really living and working in Melbourne in the 1920s and 1930s. And she is now seen and regarded as producing some of the most beautifully abbreviated paintings of the period. Her works are very distinctive for the way that they appear very soft and misty and very ethereal. But her works are also distinctive for the feeling that they give and they have been described by people it as though they ache with feeling So there's a very strong emotive content to her work I think in terms of this kind of description the wall that we're actually all looking at would be the most sort of in terms of mood and feeling the most sort of upbeat of some of her works however her work does not slide into a deep melancholy either okay more a a beautiful poetry and lyricism in her work so they're hazy they're soft they have a strong emotive content and they're important to us for that and very different to what else was happening in Australian art, but also Clarice Beckett is important to us because she is associated with a story of neglect and rediscovery, and it's an amazing story uh, whereby she was very much forgotten until her works were discovered by chance, in around 1970 by a woman called Rosalind Hollenrake. And there is a wonderful interview in the other space uh, of Rosalind talking about her journey of of living and and researching the work of Clarice Beckett. But Rosalind Hollenrake discovered 2,000 of Clarice Beckett's canvases and paintings in an open-sided shed near Benalla in rural Victoria in, as I say, 1970. And at that point in time, many of those works had been open to the elements and to the possums and to vermin and so forth. And Ros was able to recover and, and retrieve about 370 works of those 2,000. The works that suffered mostly were those that were on stretched canvas and because of the, the the fabric and the linen and the, the air that was able to get to those works, they really were the first ones to disintegrate. However, her paintings on board and panel that were stacked up against each other, uh, were uh, they had a higher survival rate, if you like. Some of the panels were also used around the outside of the, the house that was adjacent to the shed to stop um, the foxes from getting in under the house. And the stories go on, but this is the kind of filtered version. Uh, the, The important thing here is those canvases and boards were salvaged. They were then displayed in 1971 at Roslyn Hollenrake's commercial gallery in High Street, Armadale. And that was the first retrospective exhibition of Clarice's work. And it was a very important moment in Australian art history where major figures such as James Mollison was the new director of the National Gallery in Canberra. He came in and a number of other key people, they bought eight works by Clarice Beckett for their Canberra's collection. Key critics like Patrick McHackie, a luminary, came into the exhibition. He reviewed the exhibition in 1971 and the headline of his review uh, in The Age was A Remarkable Modernist. And these kinds of things have slowly led to her being repositioned into Australian art history but it hasn't been overnight. Ros staged an exhibition in 1972, 1979, and so forth and so on. Today, Ros Hollenrake is 83, and she is still working on her final statement, her biography on Clarice Beckett. And I stand here before you today, uh, as, as Roz does, where really we're resting on the smallest amount of information. Roz has spent 50 years of her life trying to piece together this mysterious tale of Clarice Beckett. She re- remains an enigma there are no letters, there are no journals, there are no ledgers. Many of her exhibition catalogues, Clara Becker in her lifetime staged 10 solo exhibitions in a row and one catalogue survives from those exhibitions. So even the catalogues are missing and everyone, when I say this to people, people go, oh, haven't you tried the library? <laughs> yes. We have. Um, And Roz. 50 years, nothing turned up. The most recent piece of information that has turned up was in... uh, There is one living descendant of Clarice Beckett and it turned up in uh, this descendant's mother's purse that she came across in the family items. And that was 2009 and it was a little folded piece of paper in a purse that was a summary of the ledger of paintings that existed at the time of Clarice Beckett's death in 1935. She died at the age of 48, very suddenly. So again, we're piecing together information and you would think people would come forward too with catalogues and so forth, nothing. And I reconciled myself the other day with the fact that um, as I looked around the room once the exhibition was up, You know, what we are looking at here on these walls are her diaries. They are what remain of her life. And they are painted, as you will know, most of them on the spot very rapidly. And she painted every day uh, across this 16-year period. And so these are her daily notes to us. So what I might do, I'll move from... That information if you like and talk about some of the works around the space which is also much more interesting than listening to me and and pointing a few things out to you. One of the myths I wanted to dispel with this exhibition is we always have thought, well, certainly me, I made the mistake of Clarice Beckett only painted early in the morning and only late at night because she was you know looking after her elderly parents and so forth, wrong. Uh, She really was only restricted in her movements quite late in her life. Her mother died in 1934 and she spent about a year nursing her mother. Prior to that she was very free to go and paint um, and she certainly painted at all times of the day and in all weather. So what you have in this space are works that she painted during the day and mostly this half of the space is dedicated to works that relate to the coast and the beach and um, Sandringham Beach and Brighton Beach and Morris, literally at the end of her street. She lived in Morris. she moved to Morris from Bendigo with her family in 1919 and they built a very beautiful home. She did request Uh, with her father when they were drawing up the architectural plans could she please have could they please accommodate a studio for her and her father said no the kitchen table will do Uh, and that's why we have one space here I, I felt that the kitchen space was a very critical potent creative space for her and so there is a story relating to the kitchen in the next space So she did paint mostly outdoors but also indoors but in the shared space of of the kitchen. So she lived in Beaumaris and she lived on the corner of Tramway Parade and Dalgetty Road and I had the great pleasure of going there recently and just getting a a geographical kind of reading on where she was and what street she walked down each day. She was really quite close to to the coastline. Um, you know, several hundred metres and she was there. So this particular wall that we're looking at behind me are works that she has painted during the day at the beach and what you notice when you look at her responding to daylight and brighter light, she uses a different technique. She introduces a lot of bold colour and she starts to break up her forms, and she starts to also blur a lot of the forms. So you notice, for example, this suite of pictures here, you can see how everything looks almost fragmented, if you like. I love this one, uh, this little painting here at the top with the woman with the blue hat and the red umbrella. That was her sister Hilda, her younger sister Hilda. And there are family photographs of Hilda on the beach, actually, that are out on the timeline. What I love about it is the way that Clarice has responded to that sort of moment by using the very strong red colour and the blue. But if you blur your eyes, you see that form of the figure and the umbrella in the foreground. is almost a perfect triangle. And these sort of triangular forms recur. If you walk around the space these patterns um, come up and even in the foreground here you see this strong pinnacle pyramid form, classic in in, in painting. So a beautiful image of her sister and certainly people at play we have when you look closely you discover all sorts of wonderful things in her work when you spend time with them. We have someone about to do a cartwheel here and I love this one with the hot tangerine umbrella and again she's got that kind of blurred blurring of the forms, and in doing so, what has she done? She's really captured the hot intensity of the heat, and you can feel that sort of vibration of the heat. And I love the way she's got this reclining woman getting some cool shade under the umbrella. This masterwork from the National Gallery of Australia, one of the works uh, purchased by James Mollison in that first 1971 exhibition, a lovely game of beach cricket underway here, some people on horseback, and this beautiful field or skin of sand. And what does she put right in the middle of that major composition? She places this scraggly little bit of tea tree. She breaks every rule in the book, which is what we so love about her. So some of these works look pretty unoffensive, you know, they're quite nice scenes of the beach and so forth Um, but they're actually incredibly radical for the period okay so if you think about this is when Hans Heysen was painting Elliot Gruner Arthur Streeton, and all of those artists that were really creating quite heroic images of the Australian landscape images that really had a sense of national statement about them You'll note that Beckett's images are very much glimpses of an everyday incidental moment. So they're very low-key and this caused a lot of controversy in her lifetime. So when she passed away at the age of 48, certainly it's fair to say that her father didn't understand her work and some of her most radical paintings—the paintings where she starts to just go into total abstraction—and there's some examples of that in the um, sunset space. They are the they are the works that her father burnt after when she passed away. Other paintings were sent to the shed, uh, the outdoor shed, but the most radical works were burnt. So we will never know the full output of her full creative output. Again, these are fragments. These are information uh, for us. What I'll do at this point, however, is... I would like to talk a little bit about her teacher, Max Meldrum, and the controversies around her life. But before I do that, I will just ask you to turn around and look at another beautiful work. I'll stay where I am, but just on this blue wall at the back, to the left of the little porthole on this blue wall, you'll see a work that's very well lit and and illuminated, and this is a beautiful work that a very nice, uh, not very nice, but a good friend of Clarice Beckett gifted, uh, or bequeathed, I beg your pardon, to the Ballarat Art Gallery. It's a beach scene, and I I love to refer to it as my kind of melting moment in the space, because if you do look at it, you get that classic, soft, dreamy, melty appearance of her work. But also it is a fantastic example of the way she followed very much in the manner of Whistler, where Whistler said paint should be applied to your painted surface like a breath onto a pane of glass. So very thinly. And if you think of Streeton and Heisen and so forth, they used square painting brushes. Clara Beckett and the tonalists, they use round painting brushes. So you see the softness in those transitions of tone. But if you hold your gaze on this work, you will find yourself sailing right out towards that horizon. So it has a wonderful sense of spatial depth to it. it seems, even though it's a very little work... It feels much bigger. It feels like perhaps some of those big panoramas that in Australian art history that we know better, but in this tiny work, she packs in this immensity and vastness of space. The other reason I want to draw your attention to this work is it's painted on something unusual. It's painted on something called Canadian beaver board. And she, Clarice Pickett, she was supported by her family. She received a stipend, but she never had a, a huge income. So she was quite resourceful with her painting materials. So she certainly painted on canvas, as I mentioned. She also painted on canvas board. So that's canvas glued down onto board. But she also used this packing and furnishing and building material that came out from Canada. And it was a very stable, flat kind of board. Um, Uh, that that she used quite a lot and we know this because the boards are stamped on the back. uh, Another work I'll draw your attention to on the same wall is this teeny tiny painting to the right of the porthole that I hope some of you can see. If you're viewing it from a distance you'll see the beautiful way she's captured that shimmering reflection on the water in the foreground Absolute magic little work and I realised that this is actually a colour study done on the spot for a larger work in the first room, the morning room. If you go back and have a look, you'll be able to see. So it's almost identical. But when we were preparing for the exhibition and this work was over with the conservators at Art Lab, they rang me and they said, Tracy, you know what? This work is actually painted on a brown paper bag. So again, she was using all kinds of materials in the kitchen space in a little illuminated box in the kitchen space you'll see another work, a sunset that she's painted on a Kellogg's cornflakes box, okay. So we might just turn around this way again if you don't mind and perhaps I'll talk a little bit about the reason that Clarice Beckett's work looks quite distinctively soft as we were just looking at and very hazy is that she is known as a tonalist. And some people, I've tried to talk about this and some people have still been left a little confused but I'd like you to perhaps think about an artist like Margaret Preston or Grace Cossington smith and these artists, Dorrit Black, that I'm sure you all know, great Australian women artists, but they were very interested in certainly to begin with post-impressionism and the power and the emotive power of colour and broken colour and certainly cubism so flattening out the picture plane. So they were all investigating these kinds of modes of depicting the world. But Clarice Beckett was different and very unusual because she was a tonalist, so what does that mean? It means that she had formal studies. She studied for three years under Frederick McCubbin at the National Gallery School. She studied drawing for three years. And as you all know, through that sort of formal, almost stuffy Munich system of training, once you've finished three years, you might be allowed to then study painting. Anyway, of course, she was was an award-winning student, very successful, and she was offered the chance to study for another year under an artist called Bernard Hall. She she chose not to do that. Clarice Beckett then went to study with a, a, a man called Max Meldrum and he had just opened up his own art school. So this is 1917 in Melbourne. Up until this time, there was, if you wanted to be an artist, there was only one art school, National Gallery, that's it. So Max Meldrum having spent 12 years in France, he was the winner of the National Gallery of, uh, National Gallery of Victoria's Travelling Scholarship. He was a star student, 1899. He went off to Paris to study. Long story, he stayed there 12 years. And while he was in Paris and in France, he was working up his own ideas about representing and looking and painting. And he came up with a whole lot of radical ideas and he set up right in Elizabeth Street in Melbourne, his own private art school in 1916. Now, what happened was, all of the best and brightest students at the National Gallery School were hearing about his results and his ideas and they were jumping ship, all moving over from the National Gallery School to study with Max Meldrum. So, a storm, or you might say, A war broke out in Melbourne over this, okay? Because Max Meldrum was undermining the future, really, and the integrity of the National Gallery School. Now, why was everyone jumping ship? Because he said to his students, you can learn to paint very quickly and very successfully if you use this particular technique. So what he did is he... It's essentially called look and It's that simple, if only it was. But he taught students to take a focusing point, take their subject, look at their subject, absorb it in, and remember the first impressions of tones, so the darker colours and the lighter colours that meet their eye. Remember it, move over to your canvas and record the dark and light tones on your canvas go back to your focus point, look at your subject, take it into the eye, and then go back to your canvas and work up your image. No preliminary drawing whatsoever. Oil straight onto the canvas. Very, very quick technique. And what do you know? The results were phenomenal. And there is no modern Australian artist, major artist, that did not have a Meldrum moment. He wrote a book, And that book filtered around Australia and it was thumbed through by people like Roland Wakeland, Roy de Maester, Lloyd Rees, Grace Cosington-Smith, you name it, they all had their Meldrum moment because his ideas were revolutionary. Now, there's Clarice. Her mother had to go and meet Max Meldrum first before she was allowed to study with him. And her mother came away with the impression that Max Meldrum was actually a gentleman. Uh, And and indeed he was, mind you, he had the reputation of of pounding his opposition into a dim, inarticulate mess. So he was very smart and very quick, uh, but regarded by Baldwin Spencer in Melbourne at the time as a conceited megalomaniac. But what happened was Melbourne divided in half. The art world divided in half. You were either with Meldrum or against Meldrum. So Clara Beckett studied with him, uh, you know, drawn to his revolutionary painting ideas, and the stigma kind of stuck to her. She only studied with him for nine months. She took away his techniques and his ideas and she applied them in her own way, in her own environment around Beau Morris. Now, part of what was so interesting about Meldrum was the painting technique, that rapid painting technique with pre- no preliminary drawing, was it removed all of the details out of your painting. So Meldrum was very clear about don't paint what you know, paint what you see and a lot of his ideas were built on the back of Leonardo da Vinci's dictum of taking in a certain field of vision and only paint what you can see and by doing this process you create you recreate through your painting or your sculpting that sense of that engagement and the feeling that you have when you're depicting your subject so these works all of them are actually also designed to be viewed slowly and from a certain distance. The closer you walk up to her paintings, the more the surface falls apart. You've probably noticed that when you've walked through. But if you step back, suddenly everything pulls together and it's by using this tonal technique, by recording lights, and darks. So I hope that's a little bit clearer for you, but I cannot underscore how um, stigma... To this day, Max Meldrum is still has a stigma associated with him. Very unfortunate because he was so important, but 10 years after Clarice Beckett studied with him for nine months... A critic in the newspapers said, Gosh, I wish Clarice Beckett would get out of the shadows of Max Meldrum and get into the sunlight. 14 years after she studied with him, 14 years, she was regarded in in the newspapers as a new and dangerous variety of Meldrumite. Okay? 14 years. So I'm just trying to build a picture for you that Clarice Beckett, you know, it was a lonely road in a way. She certainly sold her, some of her paintings. She had a number of, of small number of supporters. She sold almost nothing because she produced her art almost as though it was a self renewing act. Every day she saw things on repeat, the same subject. She never left Victoria in her lifetime. And she returned again and again to the same streets. They had an incredible magnetism to her. Nature had a magnetism to her. The beaches, the the bathing boxes. And every time she looked, it was afresh and new. So it was like a meditation on nature for her. I'm very happy to just touch a little bit on uh, the spiritual aspects in her work, if you can bear with me. You will note through the exhibition we, well, I had this thing in my mind that through a lot of the reading I was doing that there is almost certainly a transcendent aspect to her work. Her intent is to, and in following of Meldrum, is to create spatial depth. And if you do hold your gaze on some of these works, particularly I'll flag for you on the back of this wall here when you're standing in the morning room, there's a landscape. If you stand at a distance from that beautiful pathway landscape and hold it, you feel as though you can walk through that landscape with her. You feel her with you. There is a winding path and at the back of the landscape is a luminous light. And so for me, you we are almost, even though these works are still rendered, we know that's a yacht, we know these are bathing boxes, we know it's nature in a scene. The optical effect of these works is abstract. And she definitely takes us into another realm. And as I started going with this and talking to Rosalind Hollenrake, who finished her PhD on Clarice Beckett in 2017, uh, it became more and more clear to me some of Clarice Beckett's interests and how they have played out in her work. For example, her mother became friends... This is a bit out there, but stay with me. Her mother became friends with a local hawker in Bendigo uh, called Luca Singh. He was a Hindu man, and he... Um, told Clarice Beckett's mother her sort of future. He was clairvoyant. And he predicted to, with Clarice's mother that he could... And at that time, Clarice was one of three children. And Lucas Singh said to Clarice's mother, I can only see one luminous light among your three children. And the mother very much favoured the younger daughter. And she thought, oh, well, it's Hilda. It's Hilda. Uh, But it was, of course, Beckett. So there was this openness to this kind of thing in the household, uh, clairvoyance. But also, as a very young woman, Clarice Beckett subscribed to a spiritualist magazine, The Harbinger of Light. And she was involved with a a circle of artists in Melbourne who were actively involved with theosophy. Um, And remember, this is sort of post-First World War, so 60,000 men had been lost, the war, the effects of the war were huge, and there was, in terms of Australian art history in general, there's a big movement in a lot of painting towards healing, but also what was sweeping across Australia at this time and and certainly the Western world were a lot of these philosophical ideas, and particularly theosophy. Clarice Beckett certainly attended lectures on theosophy. She bought the books on theosophy that have never been out of print. And of course, theosophy is a kind of esoteric philosophy uh, that is based on ancient religions, and particularly ideas about Buddhism. And the believers of theosophy uh, have an idea of the world that all of the world and all of nature are all one. There is this sense of unity and oneness. There is a vibration in a tree or a path or a fence or a person. It is all related all connected and a lot of the participants and members of theosophy certainly believed in clairvoyance and they certainly practiced telepathy and we know clarice beckett attended dinners with artists in melbourne where there were seances and we also know that clarice beckett uh, was loved as a child the ouija board so what i'm saying here is there is this interest in something beyond our earthly realm. And it was a widespread interest. In Australia at the time, in 1923, at Barramoral Beach, uh, some theosophers actually built an amphitheatre, maybe some of you know of it, the Star Amphitheatre, huge, built on the beach with a temple that through which you could view Sydney heads because they believed the new leader of the world was going to come through Sydney Heads, walk across the water and give lectures at the amphitheatre. And I'm saying, I'm mentioning this kind of thing to you because it was gripping society and it was also having an impact on artists and those who had lost their loved ones. There was an interest in trying to engage with the other realms Um, And also with science, science confirming that the invisible realm is out there. There is an invisible realm that can be measured. So there's all these shifts happening in culture, but also certainly with Clarice Beckett was absolutely in tune with these ideas, as were at exactly the same time artists around the world like Mondrian, kandinsky all the same kind of ideas and and certainly it it very much rose out of the movement of symbolism so um, if i come back to these uh doorways where you go through i felt it was important to perhaps give audiences an a kind of look into contemplating these ideas about her work. One of the books that Clarice Beckett read was The Voice of Silence, written by a woman called Helena Blavatsky, who founded Theosophy. And she said in her book, if you spend time with nature, if you look and feel and observe nature, her portals will open up her hidden secret chambers to you. Okay, so again, this is what Clarice Beckett was reading, and so the portals in this exhibition give you this sense of moving from one space through into another realm. I know this. This I said to an academic the other day uh, about this that I've been. U- I said I've been using the S word, which is spiritualism. Okay. Professor Ian North, we had a dinner here the other night. Professor Ian North, a great art historian, he said, Tracy, you could not use those words in art history five years ago, okay? So if you're grappling with some of this, that's okay, and I don't want to frighten you off, but I think it's very important that we understand artists in Australia were tapping into the same kind of ideas and exploring different realms as were artists around the world so in this sense clarice beckett is incredibly radical and modern but it also explains why she was she threatened the establishment during her career nobody understood her work nobody understood it they couldn't understand why year after year after year she was assembling these huge exhibitions, going in and she would arrange her works. There would be really no titles for her works. And Max Meldrum himself, when he staged groups, exhibitions, black frames, no titles, like almost a, an installation experience. These were works he said they had to be felt and experienced. So. Perhaps um, on that note, I might just conclude, because I know it's been a long time for you to sit still, but I would be very happy to answer any questions because some of this stuff is pretty complex in a way. Yes, so the question and and the comment is that Clarice Beckett's work is is similar in this way in terms of its spiritualism to the work of Mary P. Harris, who was quite an important artist here, a modernist artist here in in Adelaide, and she is quite known as, as a kind of mystic, if you like, and, and interested in mysticism, but also certainly in the ancient nature of our, our culture and, and Aboriginal culture. She was very sensitive, I believe, to that. So all, yes, absolutely all part of the, the same ideas. So the question is about Clarice Beckett's colleagues and, and peers, if you like, with the Max Meldrum There were a number of shining lights that came through the Max Meldrum School, such as Colin Coolehan and Percy Leeson, um, John Farmer and Polly Hurry. Now, a lot of them, for example, Colin Coolehan and certainly Percy Leeson, they left Australia. Percy Leeson had a very successful career in New York And Colin Coulihan ended up with having a quite a successful career and living and working in the south of France. Um, So Polly Hurry, much quieter artist, beautiful artist, um, very finely appreciated, but no grand career if if you like. There is almost, as I said, you know, almost no Australian artist that hasn't had a Meldrum moment. There weren't a lot of female painters uh, working with Meldrum, but they had mixed success, if you like. Um, Others went into writing and literature. um, And, you know, we will obviously never know what could have happened and the outcome with, with Clarice Beckett. But even artists, for example, like um, John Brack uh, was trained by William Dargie. William Dargie was a, a Meldrum student. So the infiltrations of tonalism and the ideas have gone across generations of, of Australian artists. Most of them don't own up to it, mind you. Thank you so much for your attention and thank you so much for coming. Okay, Thank you.